Welcome back to the What is Truth podcast. As always, I am your resident philosopher, Travis Webb. That's the great philosopher, Travis Webb, and I'm Pastor Sam. And as always, that will be a point of relativity, a philosophy that we're not going to go into today, but what we are going into today is Stoicism, and more specifically, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Now, uh, when it comes to Stoicism, um, is that where somebody just goes and doesn't have much emotion? I realized as I was doing this and I was making the face that you can't see this on a podcast without a video. But just, you know, somebody who just has a uh, no emotion in their face, is that Stoicism? Actually, that's a common misconception and actually is almost a caricature of what Stoicism, the actual philosophy, would be. Uh, but uh, No, it's less of a idea of being emotionless uh, as opposed to an idea of self-control over emotion. Interesting, interesting. So uh, where do we start with, with Marcus Aurelius, and where do we start with Stoicism? Uh, well, uh, with Stoicism, uh, Stoicism was widely popular uh, for about five centuries, uh, shortly after uh, Aristotelianism was introduced. Uh, now, this okay. is going to be bringing us finally into the... Uh, Christian era of history. Uh, we're finally making it past the BCs. So Marcus Aurelius himself uh, was born, uh, I believe it was about 151 AD. Uh, I believe it was during the reign of Emperor Hadrian. Okay. And so we're, we're uh, firmly in the Roman Empire then. Yes. And actually kind of somewhat in the height of the Roman Empire, or maybe not quite the height, but definitely in the uh, uh, flourishing of the Roman Empire as opposed to on the way up, it's it's at that peak or on its way down now. Yes, some historians actually claim that the uh, era of the Roman Empire at this time actually ending with the reign of Marcus Aurelius was one of the uh, times of the greatest flourishing in human history in general. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, so we've got Marcus Aurelius is born here. And uh, do we want to go over Stoicism first, or do we want to go over specifically into uh, Aurelius's uh, meditations? Uh, well, first, let's start a bit with uh, just a little bit about his life. Now, uh, I'll be honest, I, ha- I haven't looked as much into his life as we did with our uh, last two philosophers, but uh, uh, we do still have some stuff to look at him. Now, uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, was not born into any uh, particular... Uh, position or to any uh, very influential family. However, he was adopted into it uh, quite early on. Uh, He was adopted into the imperial family of Rome, of all families. Jackpot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No. (laughs) It's just kind of funny when you you, you think about it like that, you know. Um, Worldly, that would be the best family at that time to be adopted into. I don't know about spiritually, but physically. <laughs> oh, definitely not spiritually, but uh, yeah, he worldly he hit the jackpot quite early on, and not only that, but he was not only adopted into the family, but Emperor Hadrian actually named him uh, to be a successor to the throne. Uh, he was not the immediate successor to Hadrian. There was uh, one more in between them, but it was Hadrian who dictated uh, who his successor would be, and then. Uh, that the next successor would be Marcus Aurelius. Okay. 
And so, uh, so he's, he's named the successor, and eventually, obviously, he does become emperor in Rome. Yes, uh, he does become emperor in Rome. Uh, he uh, leads from Rome for quite a time. Eventually, he uh, goes out and decides to lead the armies of Rome himself personally. Uh, and while he's out at that time leading those armies, uh, he... Uh, begins writing what we now know as Meditations. Now, unlike the other two philosophical works that we've looked at, uh, Meditations was never meant to be published. Mm -hmm. And it was not written with any singular goal in mind. It uh, is not very chronological. It is really almost his personal journal. It's snippets of ideas and philosophical musings that came to him uh, while he was out with the army. So now, the, the, I mean, this gets kind of interesting because obviously some of the thoughts then are probably going to be a little bit undeveloped. Uh, some of the thoughts are probably going to be, um, I, I, I guess I don't quite know how to say it, but they're, they're, they're not going to, this isn't, like you said, it's not chronological. It's not going to be a linear thing. It's not going to be one thing leading to another. It's going to be kind of random and pieced together. So we're probably going to be jumping around a little bit here. Yeah, and that's why this podcast is more going to focus on stoicism uh, as a whole, rather than specifically this work, just for that reason. Now, Marcus Aurelius did subscribe to Stoic philosophy. In fact, he was one of the last great Stoic philosophers. And, but, and Stoicism, by the way, is uh, mentioned a couple times in, in the Bible, um, the, as in uh, the Apostle Paul confronted some of the Stoics, so in fact quoted one. Um, but maybe we'll get into that another time or later on this podcast. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, as we said, Aurelius wrote this book while he was out with the army because of the nature of the work and never being meant to be published and just being his own personal, uh, basically his personal journal. There's a lot of uh, short underdeveloped bits. There are, is a lot of repetition in it. Uh, a lot of it was written for him personally. He actually writes a lot of instructions to himself personally, like to remember to do this. Uh, remember where you came from. In fact, the entire first chapter of Meditations is him uh, thinking about the qualities he had and who he learned them from. Okay, so what were some of the qualities that he had and who did he learn them from? Uh, so he goes through a lot of his personal uh, teachers that uh, mostly philosophical ones, but uh, ideas such as uh, self-restraint, charity, kindness, and a lot more uh, specific ones. Uh, he attributes them to his adoptive father, to his uh, birth mother, to different teachers and friends that uh, he had in his life. Uh, and so uh, lo looking at that in the, some of those things that you mentioned, um, it sounds an awful lot like the vices and virtues that Aristotle uh, put out that we looked at last time. Um, not that it's the same thing, I, I, I know, and we're, we're probably going to get into a little bit of the differences on that, but a lot of those are the same qualities that Aristotle would have put out. Yes. So, again, much like we saw in Nicomachean Ethics, uh, Stoicism was heavily focused on virtue. Uh, however, for different reasons and uh, almost more focused on virtue than Aristotelian ethics were. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Aristotle, as uh, we remember, uh, 
his big idea from Nicomachean Ethics was that idea of eudaimonia, of uh, flourishing, of success. Uh, not only influenced by your personal uh, ethical and moral choices, but also by outside factors such as your reputation in the society. Mm-hmm. Which, which that eudaimonia is talked about the happiness, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what we uh, normally translate to happiness nowadays. Uh, whereas Stoicism, Stoicism focused entirely on that idea of virtue. And it absolutely disregarded any outside, uh, outside influence on your personal success or fulfillment. Uh, it thought that those were meaningless to it. Okay, so where did it find its meaning here in Stoicism? Uh, so Stoicism was wholly focused on uh, moral virtue. It was entirely focused on the idea of self-improvement and virtue as well. Mm-hmm. Not just attaining that perfection, but striving toward it. Uh, the idea was to basically make yourself a better person by adhering to moral virtue and striving for it. Right, which, which of course, we... Uh... As uh, as Travis and I were uh, just uh, discussing before the podcast, this this isn't the um, Stoicism isn't a Christian philosophy, though it's we're inching our way closer to Christianity. It's still not quite right. Uh, and one thing that I'm sure that we could see immediately with this is that it's trying to find an objective morality and an objective personal uh, improvement uh, and. Of course, the issue is is that without a solid foundation, there really isn't any objective standard for that, which is is ultimately what it always comes down to with philosophy is what I found when we're talking about uh, uh, moral philosophy anyway. Yes, we keep getting to that idea now. Uh, which uh, I'm totally jumping ahead. <laughs> of course, but uh, you are right about that. We are hitting and looking for an objective Uh, reality and objective moral truth here, which Stoicism does get us closer to. Uh, It rejects that idea of a uh, scale between virtue and vice that uh, Aristotelian ethics uh, provided. Right. So would it be a little bit closer uh, towards uh, Plato's Republic then um, in his ethics that he put forth? Or is this creating something a little bit different even from that? I would say that it's something... A little bit different from that, but the idea of going back is kind of uh, is kind of true in Stoicism. Uh, Stoicism almost thought of themselves as a uh, direct descendants philosophically of Socrates himself. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so now we had Socrates, who apparently Plato came from Socrates. We, we don't have Socrates, and he doesn't have any written work. Uh, so really, what we have is is Plato. <laughs> yeah. Um, Unfortunately, but so that's that's an interesting claim I think to make that it's saying that they're directly from that. So they're kind of skipping over Plato and saying no, we, we come from Socrates. Yeah. So that idea comes again from that idea of rejecting outside influence on personal success that Aristotle uh, brought forth, and one of their arguments for it and how they almost claim to almost have originated from Socrates is that Socrates himself never. Uh, had any outside influences that would have worked toward his personal success or fulfillment. He was poor most of his entire life, and he, as we know, he was eventually executed for uh, his philosophical musings and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Aristotelian 
uh, philosophy, he should have been uh, very far down as far as success and fulfillment because at that time he had no reputation, uh, he had no uh, personal success in society's view. Whereas the Stoics would have considered that he would have had a very happy and fulfilled life uh, because even through those hardships he uh, maintained uh, his moral character. Right, which which this is uh, this becomes once again a philosophical uh, contention that we even see today being played out uh, as those who would be of a much more worldly philosophy would say that everything comes down to circumstances and our circumstances attribute to everything. In fact, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this when we start looking at more modern guys like Sam Harris, uh, but that's almost a a form of secular determinism or a foundational block. I, I'm not trying to say Aristotle was a secular determinist. That's that's not what I'm saying. Um, but that idea that the outside forces, our circumstances, go and produce our happiness is would be a lot more uh, in the, the realm of Aristotle, whereas in Stoicism isn't saying that, which is a step closer to Christianity uh, because our circumstances is not where we find our happiness. Our or our success, or that that true eudaimonia uh, that we're we're talking about, that self fulfillment, we don't find it in our circumstances. Now, that's not to say that outside circumstances are completely uninfluential in that period. The Stoics right. wouldn't say that outside circumstances will never have anything to do with your personal success or fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Rather, they said it does not directly affect it. Uh, whereas, it would say that. Uh, outside factors such as uh, hardships that you would go through would help you to build moral character and thereby improve your overall fulfillment. Which, once again, is something that we can find in Romans chapter 5 to a degree and also James chapter 1. So, I mean, it's uh, Travis was telling me, he was assuring me that we're getting closer here to biblical philosophy, though we're still not there. (laughs) Not quite, but we are getting closer. In fact, a lot of secular historians... You might have to correct me if I'm wrong, because I all the time mix up secular and unsecular, non-secular, whatever it is. Non-religious historians, whatever one that is. I'd call them secular, but... That's it. So, secular historians uh, will often say that uh, Stoicism was almost a precursor to Christian ethics. That uh, Stoicism itself influenced Christian ethics. Okay, which which we look at this, Western civilization, um, and... What's the name of Ben Shapiro's book? The Right Side of History. The, the Right Side of History. Uh, ben Shapiro probably has more than one book, but Travis knew what I was talking about. Uh, <laughs> um, but Western civilization is, its its foundation is the Bible. That's, that's the first thing that we need to understand. But what it does is it answers the questions that Western philosophers ask with the Bible. So in that sense of ask, answering the questions like that Plato brought forth, of uh, we need objective morality, uh, or excuse me, objective justice. How can we find objective justice? They go and they say, yes, we need objective justice, but the objective justice is found in Scripture. And so Plato started off by asking the right question, but didn't have the right answer. Uh, Aristotle, that idea of vice and virtue, that's not quite uh, as, in one sense, it's not quite as close. Um, you, you do see some idea of the excess of something that could be good can become bad in someone's life. Like, I mean, gluttony would be a example of that. So in that sense of vice and virtue. 
Um, but he's asking the right questions once again, and Marcus Aurelius is asking the right questions. The Stoics are asking the right questions. And so in that sense, it's definitely a precursor to biblical or Christian ethics, although it doesn't have the right answer. I, I can just guarantee that because the Bible is the only thing that has the right answer. But exactly. Am I on the right track there? Absolutely. Again, we are inching closer and closer. It's almost the idea of a asymptote in mathematics or geometry. It A line that curves closer and closer to a certain point, but never quite makes it there. Right. And that's where we're going to continue to see we get with uh, Western philosophy outside of Scripture. Which, which it's interesting to bring that up, and, and this is definitely taking a little bit of a rabbit trail, but the reason why we're doing this podcast isn't just so that people can go and, and oh, hey, you know more about philosophy now. I mean, that, that's an added benefit. But it's because today we see and proclaim Christians, and some who are Christians too, but they have worldly philosophy first, and then they try to tag the Bible in it and try to build up their philosophy by uh, eisegesiting the Bible instead of getting their philosophy from the Bible and then seeing what fits that. And so, I mean, these ideas of Western civilization uh, and other philosophies too, it's the idea so we can identify errors in people's philosophical framework and to hold them accountable to the Bible. I'd say that, to continue to digress, I'd say that another issue we see in our contemporary society is that we continue to abandon the foundations that our society was created on. Absolutely. We're abandoning these ideas uh, brought forth by Western philosophy, these uh, Judeo-Christian foundations that our society was based off of, and we're uh, beginning to reject them. Deconstructionism, uh, critical theory, all these kind of things, they're not just hitting on biblical principles they're trying to go and eliminate people asking the right questions that the Bible answers. So uh, postmodernism would be one of the biggest vehicles of this. Boy, we're really not sticking to Stoicism right now. I'm sorry. Maybe I should just uh, quit, but, but but I'll finish that thought anyway. <laughs> that would probably spur about eight more. Um, postmodernism, instead of going and asking, do we need objective morality or objective justice, as, um, as Plato asked that question, it... it <laughs> It would go and uh, ask a question of more, um, how do you feel? And justice must be subjective, it says as a declarative, uh, instead of declaring that justice must be objective. And so when you change those two things, uh, it becomes, it falls apart. The society falls apart. So it's not just the Bible that's being attacked, although that is the most important thing that's being attacked. The way they're attacking it is by attacking the questions that were being asked or those uh, those presuppositions that we needed, uh, like we need objective justice to truly have justice. So where are we with Stoicism? Right at the beginning, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay. Well, to kind of continue that idea of uh, it inching closer and closer to biblical thought, uh, now this is going to sound kind of out there for some of our listeners, but one of the ways in which Stoicism comes closer to biblical truth is Stoicism's adherence to pantheism. Now, don't shut us off. Don't shut us off here, because I looked at Travis pretty strange when he told me that, too. 
Um, but, but bear with us here. There's a point to make, and the point isn't that we're pantheistic. We're not pantheistic. Pantheism is wrong. Yeah, pantheism, outright wrong, but in the way that the Stoics uh, apply pantheism gets us closer to biblical truth. It isn't biblical truth, but it's getting us ever so much closer. So how do they use this pantheism? So the Stoic idea of pantheism... Is that where people worship pans? Sorry. Terrible pun. No, not quite. Uh, well, I would say that they do view that there is some divinity in frying pans. <laughs> but that's because the idea of pantheism is that there is divinity in everything in the world. Uh, basically, uh, the universe is God. God is the universe. That whole uh, idea. Uh, very similar to a lot of Eastern philosophies. Right. But... uh. What's important for that, uh, for getting us closer to biblical truth, is that uh, Stoics viewed moral virtue in one of the ways in that it should be applied to people. We should always act virtuously toward each other because, given the idea of pantheism, every person has a bit of divinity in them. Right, and so how it gets us closer would be because of Genesis 1. Now, it's not the same thing, so understand we're not advocating Eastern philosophy, we're not advocating pantheism, but it's this idea of how people are treated and their right as to how people should be treated to a degree, um, but it's for a little bit different reason, although they're seeing the, the, uh, the evidence that God left them, but they're not quite coming to the truth. Would that be the way to say it? Yes. So and here's the, the passage. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So that is where it gets us closer. Not that we should, not that the Stoic idea of treating people with virtue because they have divinity in them, but it gets us closer to that biblical idea of treating people with virtue because they are made in the image of God. Right, which which there's there's a fine, I mean, it's not even a fine line. I mean, it's a pretty bold, painted line, but this is closer than the crazy ideas that um, Plato had, is what we're saying. That's We're not saying this is the right view. We're saying it's closer than what Plato had, because Plato was like, Let's have a uh, a raffle as to who can marry who, but let's rig, not even marry, who can mate with who, but let's rig the raffle so that only people of good stock will mate with people of good stock because they're of greater value than people who have some defects. And it also gets us closer than the idea of treating people with virtue for uh, personal success and fulfillment. Right, right, because that, that would be a self-centric uh, thing rather than an outside-centric because God created it so. And obviously, Stoicism isn't saying God created it that way. They're just saying we happen to have a piece of divine in us, which is wrong, but it's closer to the image of God. <laughs> yeah, so as we said, we're constantly getting closer and closer here. Now, uh I lost my train of thought there for a second. Now, that's what it was. Now, this idea of pantheism uh, is not only 
uh, seen clearly by reading Stoic philosophy to be uh, closer to this idea of uh, people being made in the image of God, but we even see this brought up in the Bible itself, uh, particularly in Acts 17. Uh, in Acts 17, uh, we see the Apostle Paul uh, go to Athens, the center of philosophy in Western civilization, as uh, we've gone through with Plato and Aristotle. But uh, while he's there, uh, he's actually brought to the Areopagus, which is uh, historically a meeting place for philosophers. And he's brought there by uh, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, who are bringing him before everyone because they want to hear of this new doctrine that he's preaching, this new doctrine being Christianity, of course. Mm -hmm. But he actually quotes a Stoic philosopher to them, uh, particularly uh, Aratus, a Stoic philosopher and poet. And he's actually quoting uh, the idea of pantheism to them, now, saying that, yes, everyone is... Basically, I'm not saying that uh, he's saying that everyone uh, has divinity in them, but he's saying, basically, you guys are close. We should be we You're should be so treating close. one another with uh, w with respect. <laughs> Basically, saying that uh, here probably be just easier if I looked up the actual quote than me just trying to think of this from memory, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, it's I think it's Acts seventeen. Uh, is it verse twenty four? No, maybe not quite. Uh, verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That's mm -hmm. getting to the idea of the brotherhood of man in Stoicism. That, uh, Again, going back to the idea of pantheism, uh, everything being one, they also viewed all humankind as being uh, one brotherhood, one brotherhood of man. That was another uh, particular reason why you Stoics called for virtue between people, was that uh, all humankind is one people, therefore you should treat them all with virtue. Uh, there are no uh, separate peoples. Right. It, it, it's. I, I was just reading as to what the Apostle Paul said after that, and we'll, I'm sure we'll read that here in just a moment, but it's brilliant what he does. Because he goes and he finds a common thread. He's all things to all men here. And he's not ascribing to their doctrine. He's not ascribing to their philosophy. What he's saying is their philosopher said something right, but he doesn't understand that it's right. And he doesn't understand how it's right. He's saying, look, he's close, but this isn't, but let me redefine it for you. Let, let me show you what, what the proper way to view this is. Uh, and he goes to that immediately in verse 29 because <laughs> he goes and he says, um, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art in man's devising, which then that, that contradicts Stoicism uh, to a degree in that with that idea of that pantheism that God is in everything. And so he's saying, no, 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 we're not in all this material things. And he's he's, he's getting rid of that materialism. And he's also getting rid of that idea of just a, a simple creation that we're, we're just like everything else. It's the idea that we are something special 
with God. We have the image of God in us is what he's getting at. It's amazing. We practically see the birth of Western civilization in this one passage where Paul is showing the need for a merger between the Judaic theology of Jerusalem and the Greek philosophy of Athens. Right, and then this is where he hits on it in verse 30 uh, and 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. He goes, he says, look, Stoics, you're wrong. Now it's time for you to repent. <laughs> he goes, you're wrong, but you're pointing in the right direction. Now it's time for you to cross the line and come to what is correct. Uh, and then he says in verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of, all, of this to all by raising him from the dead. So basically what he goes and he says is there is a righteous standard. It's God's standard, and Jesus is going to judge you. Therefore, repent. You need to come to God's objective morality to answer the good questions that you're bringing up. No. And Western philosophy was born. <laughs> but another uh, overlap that we also see with Paul is, uh, I can't recall if it was... Uh, well, I guess the first chapter of Meditations would kind of hit on this and that he uh, seeks to emulate these characteristics of uh, different people that have been in his life. But another idea of Stoicism is uh, self-improvement and uh, looking for control over uh, your desires by emulation. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, one of the ways to overcome those desires is uh, to emulate someone that you admire that has those traits that you seek to emulate, uh, such as self-control or uh, piety, kindness. Uh, now, uh, I think you already kind of get where I'm going with this, but uh, there's another reference in Scripture where uh, uh, Paul commends uh, different Christians to emulate him as he also emulates Christ. Right, and and actually, what I I was uh, turning to though was was Second Timothy. I guess we're not on the same page, but but it, but it's the same idea, same train. <laughs> yep, same same train. In uh, Second uh, Timothy two two, uh, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so that idea of, of multiple things, and then three ten. Uh, it says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. And then verse 11, it says persecutions, afflictions, and then it says where those afflictions happen. Um, but it's that idea of emulating. And, and this is something I think that is really helpful to understanding in the Bible, too. Um, discipleship was not even invented with Jesus. And I'm, uh, I'm not saying that to downgrade at all Christian discipleship, but one thing we do need to understand is that discipleship was very much a part of the society that uh, Jesus was a part of, um, both the Hebrew and the Greek society, uh, or Roman society, I should say. And that that's important, I think, for us to understand because uh, we a lot of times have a shallow view of discipleship, uh, that it's just going and repeating the same doctrines. But really, this idea of discipleship was um, going in and fulfilling, as the Apostle Paul said here, the manner of life, the purpose, uh, the faith, the long-suffering, the perseverance, the afflictions. 
uh, persecutions, afflictions. And that's what Jesus' disciples did. It wasn't just that they agreed with him doctrinally uh, and then said, oh, you're my disciples. It was that they actually followed the way he lived. And so that's uh, that was very much in that society and would have been understood as what a disciple is um, as opposed to just somebody who agreed doctrinally with Jesus. And a lot of times we get that confused in our Western society because we don't have a discipleship um we don't have a discipleship culture, is we think that discipleship is simply agreement in doctrine, but that's really not quite what discipleship is. Well, you're absolutely right. And to uh, give reference to the uh, other scriptures uh, we were trying to hit on there, uh, that would be uh, 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. And 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So... Hey, you're absolutely right. It isn't just an idea of adhering to the same doctrines, but uh, adhering basically to the same way of life, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. And, and that's a big part of Stoicism. Yes. Oh. Uh, another big thing in Stoicism that we see is a, a big emphasis on simplicity. Okay. Well, that was simple. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They're simple, but encompasses so much. Uh, for example, again in chapter one, uh, when he's uh, talking about his father, he one of the things that he writes about that he admires in his father was his simplistic lifestyle. That even though he was emperor of Rome, he was at the time basically the most powerful man in the world. He still sought to live a simplistic lifestyle, not. Uh, spending all his time in palaces, uh, sitting in fancy Roman baths, uh, adorning himself with fancy robes, but that he sought to basically live as an ordinary citizen, but in service uh, to his society, even though he was in this great position of power. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I, th that's an intriguing thing uh, with Stoicism. And, and it sounds like... Um, Stoicism put a lot of emphasis on the inward side of man rather than the external side of man. But yet one thing that's interesting about Marcus Aurelius is that he was what Plato called the philosopher king. Yes. Now, going back to Plato's Republic, we see that uh, Plato's ideal of a perfect society would have a uh, philosopher ruling over the society. Whereas, uh, finally, with Marcus Aurelius, we actually have that. A philosopher ruling as emperor of, at the time, what was basically the world. Now, he put a little different spin on it, though. Yes, it, it's funny. Historians have actually wrote that he often quoted uh, that idea from Plato's Republic to people, but he, instead of going along with the idea of Plato saying... Now, this is a paraphrase, as I don't recall the exact quotation, but uh, Plato essentially said that uh, society won't thrive until a philosopher is made king. Uh, Marcus Aurelius would quote it, uh, that society will not thrive until a king becomes a philosopher. Yeah, which, I, th that's not necessarily uh, a, a, you know, biblical philosophy or, or anything like that, but it's 
it's kind of fun trivia <laughs> and kind of fun to think about. Yeah, it's kind of funny to see how we almost see partially uh, Plato's ideas come to fruition. And uh, it actually benefits the society quite a bit. Uh, as we said, many historians claim that this is one of the greatest times in human society in terms of happiness and uh, flourishing. Uh, we also see in uh, how he writes about his father, the uh, previous emperor, that many of the things he did were in benefit to the citizens themselves, not merely for uh, personal amassing of power and wealth. So is there uh, any other big key parts of meditations or stoicism that we need to hit on? Uh, so, uh, so some another thing that we can kind of see this with this idea of simplicity is that it not only applied to one's lifestyle, but uh, really everything in their life, uh, even when it came down to their personal rhetoric. Uh, the Stoics would avoid what they would consider flowery and embellished language at all costs. So they were a little blunt. Incredibly blunt. Uh, they uh, did not believe in exaggeration or at all. They did not believe in overuse of metaphors and uh, over emotional language. Mm -hmm. So that, and this is what the, the idea of a, a stoic disposition would be, um, as in that idea of a lack of emotion. Now that's, that's, as Travis said at the beginning of the podcast, that that's a caricature of this. It's not a, uh, true accurate represent representation. They would probably believe more that emotion should be there. It just shouldn't go outside of reality so to say. It should just be controlled. Yes. So uh, a few things with that is, uh, now they did not see that emotion should be suppressed, that you should be emotionless, uh, but that you should rather seek to have control over your emotions. Now, uh, one thing that we uh, see with the Stoics is uh, that kind of going along with that is, a lot of times when something happens to us, we will immediately react emotionally. Mm -hmm. There is an immediate reaction of anger, joy, sadness, uh, some type of emotion. Uh, most people think that the Stoics sought to suppress that, whereas they didn't seek to suppress those initial emotions. Uh, they sought to control how you would react after that. If you okay. would uh, if someone were to do wrong to you and you would immediately act uh, angry over it, they did not seek to suppress that immediate emotion, rather how you reacted to that. If you would continue to go down that road of anger and resentment toward that person, or if you would uh, seek to uh, turn that around into something positive and virtuous. Which... Once again, that idea of getting closer to a, a biblical uh, philosophy and a biblical ethic, this gets near that once again, because uh, the Christian ethic towards emotion would be that it should be controlled also, but really, um, and we could say self-controlled to a degree, but really it should be Holy Spirit controlled is really where our, our emotion should be in check. And so it's a little bit different on that. Uh, and that's because we don't always, even when we're in control of our emotions, we still might not have the right response. Whereas then if the Holy Spirit is in control of our emotions, we should have, or we will have, I should say, the correct response. And so 
uh, even getting closer on that, which which I find interesting. Now, also with this, we see a uh, another deviation from the Aristotelian view of uh, ethics and that scale between virtue and vice. Now, uh, whereas Aristotle would say that, uh, for example, anger, that there is always a good time and a bad time to have anger towards someone, the Stoics actually believe that there was never a good time to have anger or hatred towards someone. Now, obviously, again, they thought that that initial emotion was okay, but they did not think that you should continue to act on that, again, for that pantheistic idea of you should not act hatefully or angrily toward uh, someone because they have that bit of divinity in them. Which, once again, is is interesting, and it, it, uh, it gets maybe closer to a degree uh, to biblical ethics and, and philosophy, but it still falls short because we are to be angry uh, towards evil. Uh, we are to hate wickedness. We are to, to have that, that driving uh, anger towards that. There is a righteous anger. Now, I, I know a lot of people listening would, would kind of go, oh, well, now hold on here. We're not supposed to get angry or hate things or whatnot. Well, it should always be controlled by the Spirit, never going beyond, not our Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, beyond what is is right. And that comes down to that objective morality. <laughs> well, and along those lines, I'd say that in the Christian ethic, we, even when there is occasion for righteous anger, it's never directed toward the person themselves, rather the sin in that person's life. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's... It's been said, you know, the uh, uh, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Satan hates the sinner but loves the sin. And Westboro Baptist Church hates the sinner and the sin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a way to put it. Um, but we need to uh, we need to be like God there and love the sinner but hate the sin. I, I got Travis pretty good on that one, so. <laughs> yeah, but. So back to Stoicism. Now, uh, another thing that we see in Stoicism is that idea of working towards self-improvement in virtue. That it's not uh, the idea of seeking to attain perfect virtue, that is the goal, but it is that uh, constant development and character. Okay. So, so the, they would not say that the end justifies the means. They would say the means justify the ends. I would say that would be a pretty good... I would say that would be a pretty accurate description of it. It Everything has to be based on that moral virtue and character, which uh, is one of the reasons why it resonated so much in Rome uh, was uh, this idea of self-improvement and virtue... Uh, toward everyone, especially since uh, it had that idea of uh, going back again to the uh, pantheistic idea of, uh, in this case, how they considered it the brotherhood of man. Uh, Roman virtue, at least early on in Rome's history, uh, particularly in the early days of the Republic, which was uh, a lot farther back than when this book was written, but uh, Roman virtue was in Roman position in society was really centered around the state. Right. Now, 
and it, it, basically the idea that the state would make the, the morality, which the problem is, of course, is as you have different emperors, you have different ideas. Well, not that necessarily that the state would make the morality, but that uh, you should act virtuous because it was beneficial for the state. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down now. So it's a close relation between the idea of stoicism and the idea of acting virtuously for the benefit of the state and the stoic idea of acting virtuously uh, for the benefit of others because of that idea of the brotherhood of man and their uh, uh, divine aspect to them. It, it was not exact, but it was quite close to that early uh, Roman Republic idea of virtue. Uh, and that's why it took off so well in Rome. Now, that was obviously before this time. That was in the early days of the Roman Republic, whereas here we're in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. But uh, after it came, it was very popular and continued to be popular with many of the highly influential Roman statesmen of the time. So uh, here's one thing I found out about Stoicism, which I thought was interesting, and it it makes a distinguishing mark between the, the theology. Um, obviously, there's a lot of distinguishing marks we can make about the theology of Christianity and uh, a secular philosophy. But one thing is, is they believed God's primary attribute was apathy, which really plays into that idea of pantheism, the idea of each, that there's a divine part in each, in everything. And, and that's because uh, it was that idea of the the God, uh, the, the one who would be a moral arbiter or, or whatever like that, would be distant and wouldn't care necessarily about what's going on. And they, they realize, they're smart enough, that um, anarchy is bad. Uh, that idea of, that always, anarchy leads to tyranny. And so, therefore, they would believe more on an equal playing field rather than an anarchy in that sense, that we should all have a standard next to each other. Uh, but it was interesting because at the same time, um, the Jews, uh, to to this degree, they believed that God's, uh, prim not primary attribute, but they believed that God was very transcendent. And he was so transcendent that he wouldn't be able to sympathize uh, with people uh, because he's just so far above people, which that went right into play with the Stoicism's uh, apathy, that God was just apathetic and distant, kind of a... Uh, far away, uh, an absent father kind of a, a mentality towards towards the world. And so where Christianity came in and revolutionized this idea and turned the Roman Empire upside down, we find in Acts, is that the Apostle Paul starts preaching not just repentance, but this also, this idea that Christ is, uh, and God himself, because Christ is God, is not an absent, uh, an absent God, but is a uh, imminent God that is is with us and has sympathized with us, came down and was among us. It was that incarnation, uh, God in the flesh. Absolutely. No, I, I had a, I had an idea there, but I kind of lost it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it that kind of plays into the idea of that uh, the god of stoicism almost it was it was not a uh, god that interacted with the world at all in fact none of the ideas of god in uh, early greek and roman philosophy uh, really interacted with the world which 
is kind of odd to see, especially in uh, this book, Meditations, that although Stoicism was a pantheistic philosophy, uh, Marcus Aurelius still adhered to the polytheistic uh, Roman religion at the time. And you can see that there's uh, some contentions in that. Uh, uh, for example, he adheres to the idea of this uh, pantheistic, everything is divine, God is the universe, the universe is God ideal, but uh, yet in the first chapter when he's thanking everyone for the uh, different influences on his life, uh, the last uh, one that he thanks, he actually thanks the gods for their providence in his life. Which is interesting, but in some, some aspects, uh, it all makes sense. Um and the reason why it all makes sense is because uh, Romans 1, okay? Uh, now, Romans 1, and I'm going to stay away from the homosexuality uh, part of Romans 1, not because it's not there, but because that's just not the point I'm going to make. I've talked several, uh, quite a bit about this uh, on the homosexual thing, but I want to take this as a, a more general look, and I'm not denying the homosexuality that's talked there, so I want to make that clear. Uh, that's within the, the hermeneutic that God condemns homosexuality, and he's not equalizing it with everything. But there is something that's really important to understand here. And that's in Romans 1, starting in uh, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is uh, manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even in his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, uh, so far we see here that people are without excuse because they can see uh, the invisible attributes of God. Essentially, they can see general uh, revelation, creation, and because of that, they can see that, then they understand that there must be a God. But then as we, we keep going down, and if, if we're, we're to keep reading here, it, it starts talking about how they are now worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Uh, it says in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with Marcus Aurelius. Uh, God is breaking this down. He's going and saying, this guy sees that this didn't come here by mistake. He's not a fool where he's saying in his heart, there is no God. What he's doing though, is he's saying, okay, there is a God, but then he attributes that Godship to creation and worships that creation rather than the creator. Absolutely. We, it, and to kind of hit that home, that uh, We've talked about this pantheistic idea uh, in Stoicism this whole episode, uh, but if you look at the actual term that Marcus Aurelius uses for it, he basically calls this idea nature. Right. He, he is literally conflating the creation with the creator. Right. And, and that's, so that's the problem with Western philosophy when you remove the Bible. It's not that they're not pointing in the right direction. It's that 
the problem is, is that they fall short because they're not finding the right thing to place their worship in. And therefore, they're not getting the right justice. Therefore, they're not getting the right ethics. Therefore, they're not getting the right morality. And so that's where it falls short. But they are pointing towards the right thing. They're not being a fool by saying there is no God. They're just placing the Godship in the wrong part. And therefore, it flows wrongly from that. Yes. And kind of to go back to our idea of this being the uh, one of the foundations of Western civilization. Now, uh, I believe we mentioned this in a previous episode, but uh, kind of bring that to a more uh, modern time with uh, uh, the founding of the United States. Uh, we saw with Benjamin Franklin that he kept a journal with uh, different virtues that he sought to improve in. And that is an idea that absolutely mirrors what we see here in Stoicism, the idea of improving one's moral character. Right. In fact, I'm guessing it probably actually lines up fairly close to meditations uh, to a degree with that. Yes. Now, I think we talked about that in our episode on Aristotle. I think so. It, I would say it definitely more closely lines up with uh, um, meditations in the Stoic philosophy. And uh, funny enough to... Now, most uh, people that dive into philosophy will look at uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle as their foundation for uh, Western philosophy, which uh, they are uh, three of the most prominent early uh, Western philosophers. But uh, obviously, since Socrates didn't have a written work, we kind of had to uh, skip over him. Right. And so we uh, chose Marcus Aurelius and the Stoic philosophy. Uh, I also recently began reading uh, Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro that you mentioned earlier. And funny enough, he actually, uh, when talking about the foundations of Western philosophy, didn't write Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, but instead wrote Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics. Right. So I thought that kind of lined up uh, quite nicely. Yeah. Well, I think we covered it. Yeah, that's definitely not all of what we can uh, take a look at here with meditations but that are those are the uh, some of the big ideas from it i would highly encourage anyone to actually uh, pick up a copy and read it there's so much to go through that we just don't have time in this podcast to go over that's right well for the what is truth podcast i'm pastor sam and i am your supposedly great philosopher travis wood keep thinking